in the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, where we are making waves in the oil and gas industry. Today, we've got a very interesting guest. We've got Ryan Hunt with Rig Callout. Ryan, how you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Where are you located right now? Of course, we're doing these remote interviews with everything going on in the world. I am actually in St. Louis, Missouri. My goal is to be the only oil and gas tech company in St. Louis, Missouri. So when you hear the location, you think of us. (laughs) Do you see much competition for oil and gas startups in St. Louis? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're doing good then. That's you're going right. to own that title. <laughs> That's right. That's the objective. Awesome. Well, you are the first guest I've had from St. Louis. So you do have that on the show as well. I've heard that on every podcast I've done. Every single one. <laughs> St. Louis has got a pretty robust oil and gas steel history. A lot of steel companies have come up through St. Louis from the 70s and the 80s and so on. There's a couple of casein mills here in St. Louis. There's a lot of pipe companies here in St. Louis, which is where I came from. So that's kind of the connection to St. Louis for us. And my wife loves it. We love it. We've got free babysitting anytime we need it. So I can't beat that anywhere else. Nice. Yeah. A common thread for anybody in oil and gas is, of course, the relocation and and moving around to follow the jobs. And I myself have moved all over the western half of the U.S. over the last 10 years. And yeah, you forget how valuable that is. Like, just like seeing family is great, but like babysitting and like just getting a break, like having family close. I mean, it's invaluable for (laughs) a lot of things. I mean, not to sound like a cheapskate, but you think about I just want to go on a date with my wife. You know, that that involves all sorts of logistics. You know, you've got a, you know, 40 or $50 babysitter. If you can find one, that's not going to like run off with your kids, you know, and then you've got, you know, dinner and a movie or dessert, whatever you do. And it just, it starts to add up and it just gets more and more difficult to just leave the house. Oh, absolutely. That's where I live. I do not have family close by. We left our family in Houston, was the closest family we had about a year ago. And I'm here in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And yeah, it's about 10 bucks an hour for a babysitter, a quality babysitter in the Oklahoma market, if anybody's cross-referencing or interested. So <laughs> it adds up quick. Yeah, that date night, you know, it's tough. People tell me there's an app for finding babysitters. And every husband think, thinks that's the best idea in the world. And every wife rolls their eyes and says, I'm not finding somebody to take care of my kids on an app. So Yeah. No. <laughs> I haven't gone looking for that. I don't think that would fly at my house. But luckily, we have a good neighborhood with a lot of, you know, kind of families in the same boat. So there's a lot of there's a lot of local talent in the babysitter market right around in my neighborhood, which is nice for me. <laughs> good problem to have. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Ryan, we really want to talk about first and foremost, like just logistics in the oil field, right? Like this is a vital 
part of everyday work and everyday jobs, but not something that everybody really thinks about as a main focus, right? Yeah. I mean, you think about oil and gas for, you know, any situation. I think one of the one of the items that stands out the greatest when you enter this industry is how expensive it is. You know, not to buy a commodity or to buy equipment, but you know, when you make a mistake, you know, if you're delivering jeans, you know, to your house that you bought off Amazon, it's not that big of a deal if they're a day late. You know, it's like, ah, eh, okay, as long as I get here by the weekend before we go do something, that's what I want. But I think my first run-in in the pipe business was somebody calling out casing on Christmas Day. And, you know, just the rig called me and said, hey, we're ready for casing. And, you know, I said, okay, no problem. I had no idea what I was doing. I called the trucking company and it was like five times greater, you know, the cost of freight. You know, and I called the customer back and I said, hey, you know what, if you wait till tomorrow, you know, it's going to be a lot cheaper, like a new truck cheaper. And the customer said, you know, son, you know, hey, (laughs) if I shut this rig down for a day, it's going to cost, you know, 10 trucks. And, you know, this is back in 2008. And, you know, it just like it never really dawned on me. But over the decade that I spend in the industry, you know, you just sit there and you're every mistake is so costly. And if if you have to out of pocket those as an employee of an organization, you generally only make that mistake one time. And if you ever make it, because, you know, every time you execute something, you're thinking it's not five bucks if I mess this up, you know, it's tens of thousands. And in an offshore, it's, it's even more ridiculous. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that adds up very quickly in either lost productivity or just somebody else waiting, you know, on their shipment. So now you got to pay that party's demerge as well as, you know, the other parties demerge. I mean, it's just becomes such a ripple effect through the whole system with just one kind of one piece out of place, right? In the oil field, unlike most other industries are, it is such a fragmented industry because everyone relies on third party services. You know, it's, The pipe company doesn't own the trucks, you know, they don't employ the drivers, you know, the shipping port, you know, those are port employees that they're not employees of the service company or, you know, the oil company They're, you know, everything is fragmented and everybody that gets in and coordinates this stuff, they're not employed by the same company. And that tends to create all sorts of just challenges. You know, in my company, if somebody needs something, they call me, we make a decision and we execute or we don't, and we don't do that. Whereas, you know, in in the logistics space, your customer will call you and say, hey, I need to delay this delivery or I need to speed it up. And, oh, hang on. Then you call a, a dispatcher, you know, and then they call the drivers and then they call somebody and, you know, and then you've got to coordinate it with the port or the rig or somebody. And it just, it's a lot of just, labor intensive communication and adjustments and asking for permission. And the bigger the company is, you know, the more layers you kind of have to stack on that process. And it just becomes really, really expensive. If you're, you know, an hour late to a shipping port and it's 10 or 15,000 bucks, somebody has to account for that, that delay. And if you can't get the information or make the adjustment before those things begin to kick in, you know, you're just, you're watching your margin evaporate over time because nobody wants to pay for that. If it's your own company, you say, okay, 
I'm going to eat that charge, make it happen. But if you're relying on other services, you're like, well, do you want to eat it or should I eat it or should they eat it? Or is the driver responsible for that? Or, you know, and you just kind of, I don't know, it's like, you know, hot potato. Everybody's just kind of throwing it around and trying not to be the one holding it at the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and really when you you step back and look at it, and not 100%, but to some degree, the fragmentation of that portion of the industry is a risk-reward model in itself, right? Nobody wants to be the one liable for the whole chain, or they don't want to be liable for the trucks in transit. And they don't, you know, I mean, everybody's, you know, kind of created these barriers between each little piece in the puzzle, which in turn has created this whole other, you know, point for loss and, you know, expense and and just, you know, frustration. And, you know, it's kind of a cycle competing with itself. Yeah. But I think that's also what makes this industry. Yeah. I think that's what makes this industry so strong is because when you own all those services, you can't competitively bid those services. You know, think about, you know, right now, if I'm going to remodel a room in my house, you know, if I had a bid six weeks ago, it's an entirely different game today. You've got 22 million people unemployed. You know, nobody's doing $100,000 rehabs right now. And so these guys need work. And so things change. And I think the fragmentation allows the industry to be very fluid. If the culture is a nature of fluid, it allows these companies to really ebb and flow and be competitive because they can say, well, this carrier is beginning to get a bit complacent. Let's put a bit out on the market. Let's see what everybody's doing. You know, are they screwed up? So you also have that kind of fear of, you know, I have to perform or I will be fired. And I think that's what makes this industry so strong in the fragmentation, but it could certainly be doing a better job of efficiencies within that fragmentation and utilizing technology to make those connection points a lot faster or even automated. Yeah, I agree with that stance as well. Yeah, I see that completely. Certainly drives a lot of a lot of competition and, you know, that's the space I live in every day and transporting crude oil and we see it all the time and yeah you make a mistake you're going to answer for it you know (laughs) in in one way or another when we are talking logistics i mean usually the biggest thing is comes back to like we've already touched on is just demerge right like just time spent waiting on or equipment waiting to load or unload right yeah i think that is where you're going to see A lot of companies really enhance their supply chains in this current market. We're not talking coronavirus. We're not talking those things. We're talking about just living in this price environment that we are and just, you know, kind of the new age of of oil and gas, which is going to be efficiencies and cost control. But, you know, demerage is generally the easiest thing to avoid but it requires coordination and communication and and people to just kind of do what they say they're going to do, which is hard to get a fragmented, you know, trucking company and then a broker driver to do these things. You know, they're rogue cowboys. (laughs) Yes, they are. They do what they want to do. And if you're putting things in place that stop them from doing that, you're generally not going to have a great deal of success. And that is, you know, do marriage and standby time. Every meeting we go to, we hear these things. And and to me, the numbers are, are staggering, mostly in part because they're happening 
and they don't need to, but the, you know, six to eight weeks ago, those numbers were, eh, it's not that big of a deal. And now, you know, that's 10 people's salaries, you know, and now that is, you know, that's important for people to look at because when you think of the hierarchy of, of the supply chain, you know, you've got, you know, BP sits at the top of that, the, the operator sits at the top of that supply chain. And then, you know, the OFSE company is kind of in the middle. And then your trucking company is at the bottom and the driver is getting squashed at the bottom of that pyramid. And, you know, as, as much as we praise them today, they're, they just get crap rolls downhill, you know, and generally when that demerage event occurs, you know, the OFSE company puts that on the trucking company and the trucking company makes the choice generally is that the driver's problem for that. If they're late to location, you know, if they're sitting and waiting and charging, you know, ultimately it's the driver that's at the greatest amount of risk at that point, because he's the one of the last guys to get paid. And so I think when you start to connect all these dots and make these connection points and create these efficiencies, A, it allows you to avoid them entirely, but it B, allows you to hold whoever is actually responsible for that charge, not just the driver. You know, again, I've come from the equipment side, the driver and the trucking company generally get the brunt of it. And it's like that everywhere. But if we can say, well, the driver was late to location in most circumstances, we're going to hit the trucking company for that charge, whatever it is. But if we have data from the point of I've ordered this, this is when I need it. If you have data to follow that, that transaction, you can then say, well, they got to my loading facility on time, but my crew is at lunch or they were stuck in traffic trying to get back to the facility or the forklift broke down and they got stuck there for a couple hours, you know, and it took them longer than they should. So legally they couldn't make that trip on time. So therefore it's the vendor, you know, the supplier, the stocking facility, whoever you can start to nail these points down or, you know, you're getting demerit and standby time at, at the shipping port, you know, and it's, well, the crew is on a mandatory break and they couldn't do this. And so we were stuck sitting there. We were supposed to be there at seven. We got there at seven, but nobody was there. And so now you can start to say, well, that's the shipping ports problem. So who's contractually obligated to this particular charge and it's on them. So you can start to assign who's actually responsible and spread those costs around to whoever you know created that that problem, if that makes sense. For me, it makes complete sense. And and I kind of come with the thought too, to add to that, just the fact that nobody benefits from the demerged cost, really, right? It's it's simply to get by. You're not profiting on demerged necessarily, you know? It's really just a penalty for lost productivity on the real revenue generating activity. So, I mean, it also then in that terms, turns into much like you just said the blame game of really who is actually at fault and when you call somebody out on that if you don't have the data to truly support that 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 can get real nasty real quick <laughs> you know like i think when we were talking before the show i mean you know i i had a customer in the past where 
it was several years back. It was the last kind of big downturn. And we had trucks in North Dakota. And I think one of the trucks had $25 in demerge on a load. And the customer sent an email pretty much company-wide back to us and said, I can't believe you're going to, you know, bleepity bleep bleep charge me for demerge right now. You can park your bleep 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 metal and I will find somebody else. And this is to the entire company over 25 bucks. But it wasn't that it was 25 bucks. It was that we were placing blame that they messed up or that they weren't ready when they were supposed to be. And I almost think like that almost has some more value in it or, or holds more contention than, than even sometimes the cost does. Right. You know, I don't know if you see that, but that's something I've seen a lot of as, as you really get into the discussion of demerge and trying to prove charges one way or the other. Yeah. I think that's the million dollar question is how do you start proving that? And then when you analyze those costs, does it take more time to to build a case against yeah. that? Or am I big enough to leverage invoices for whatever that cost may be? You know, if you ship 10 trucks a month, that's much different than a distributor that does 50,000 truckloads a month. You know, they can start to withhold some of these payments to de-risk those problems. But I had an event a long time ago in the Rocky Mountains and, you know, and this was more onshore stuff, but, you know, the same concepts apply. And, you know, we, we were doing a big pipeline job and, you know, the cheapest way to ship anything is point A to point B. And, you know, they refused to have it locally stored and stocked and shipped and trucked. And we would ship everything from Houston to Utah. And, you know, we set up for a big pipeline job and, you know, we were delivering, I don't know, five trucks a day. And so we set our delivery up to kind of kick it off and then they had to pull it back and, you know, our five trucks get moving and and it's four days. You know, you can't convoy five trucks over four days because somebody's got to pee, somebody's got to sleep, somebody's got to eat, you know, and you don't want to be pulling five trucks over, you know, every time somebody drank too much coffee. And so they start spreading yeah. out far enough to where they, they don't know where each other are. You know, when you have a kind of a lead driver or a pusher out there, they're too far apart to manage or, or manage the other guys. And so, you know, this delivery was supposed to occur on, I don't know, Thursday. I mean, this is like 10 years ago. It was supposed to deliver on a Thursday <laughs> morning. And I'll never forget it because it was, you know, it was huge. But it could have all been avoided by just a shred of visibility. And, you know, we always had a company policy that we don't broker out freight going to a job site. So these were supposed to be asset company trucks. And in a boom, capacity's tight. They hired some, you know, broker drivers to do the run. They attempted to go to location. But that Thursday morning, (laughs) I started getting the phone calls. Where are my trucks? What's going on? I got a crew. You call the trucking company and they just... Well, they'll they'll be there in twenty minutes. You know, they're they're just down the street. I guess they had to pull over last night for gas or fuel or sleep or whatever excuse it was. And you know, an hour goes by. You know, the conversations through the day started getting more and more and more heated. And you know, the responses from the trucking company: what you know, okay, have the crews leave, have them come back. They'll be there at seven o'clock in the morning. They got tied up by the DOT again. It was the story kept changing but we still yeah. had no trucks on location. And, you know, needless to say, this occurred four days in a row. And finally, we just said enough. The crews will show up when 
after the trucks show up. So whenever they show up, bring the crews out here to offload these. And when I sent the invoice for that construction crew to sit there waiting for those five trucks for, you know, for four days, they kept saying, bring them back out, bring them back out, bring them back out. They'll be there in the morning. You know, when I sent that to the trucking company for what that actual cost was, I got a call from the president of the company. He's like, you can't do that. I mean, I can't afford this. (laughs) It's like 20 times the cost of the actual freight to get out there. I said, all you had to do on Thursday was say, I have no idea where they're at. That's all you had to do. I said, but you kept telling us to go back, go back. They're almost there. They're almost there. They're almost there. And that all could have been mitigated by just a look. I pull my phone out. I look at the map. I see a dot on it. It's moving. They're four days away. Perfect. And I think that's where, you know, we're going to start to see this whole new culture that you and I have been talking about is, you know, and whatever it is today, 98 cents a barrel. I mean, this all of a sudden is a big deal. Now there's companies that are hedged out. There's always going to be somebody's drilling. There's always going to be somebody laying a pipeline. This industry is still going to move forward. You've got to maintain production. You've got to keep your wells running, you know, because you're utilizing those for cash. So the need for logistics in, in the oil field is immense. And, you know, in offshore, these are 20 year commitments. These are multi billion dollar projects. I mean, once you kind of green light the thing, you can't stop. So they'll continue yeah. to go. And so I think the need is still going to be there despite what we see in the economy or in oil prices. And so logistics are going to be even more important because, you know, there'll probably come a day where, you know, $25 of demerge, you know, at a drilling rig is a big deal with somebody. You know, right now I'm getting numbers of $50,000 a month, you know, that they're paying for demerge and standby. One in particular, $6 million a year is what they spend in demerge time. And, you know, and so if they're okay with that, and they're thinking about putting things in place to mitigate that, now they're going to do everything humanly possible for that number to be zero. And it's going to take technology to do that. Absolutely. And that's really, I mean, that's a great discussion kind of highlighting the issues around logistics. I mean, there's plenty to talk about around logistical issues within oil and gas, but I mean, that's, those are some of the big ones. And that kind of brings us back to really why you're in business, right? That's really the problem that rig callout is working to address. Absolutely. I remember my days in the pipe business, you know, like it was yesterday. I loved it. It, it was actually a really, really fun business. And I just think back to the Saturday morning sitting at my kitchen table, you know, getting cussed out by a guy out on location, you know, whether it's a, you know, the Port of Fushan or, you know, a drilling rig in Utah. The question always kind of like gets beaten in your head is why can I find my kids and my wife anywhere on the planet in five seconds if there's an internet connection, but you can't tell me where a million dollars worth of pipe is in a truck? with an iPhone in it. This is insane to me. And it was almost, you don't think about it at the time because you want to please your customer and get everything out there and get them the information that they need. So you can go back to your, your kid's soccer game or, you know, or just at least enjoy breakfast with the family without getting cussed out. And you don't think about these things when you're in the fire. It's like a chronic headache that you've gotten so used to that it's just normal. But it's not. I mean, if anywhere in any other industry, you know, they just put so much effort into 
getting rid of headaches and pain and problems and cost. And that's probably why the customer you had, you know, has gotten to the point where $25 matters. You know, unfortunately in the oil field, I don't think we've quite gotten there yet. We'll get there. This event will force that. I agree. I agree. We're going there and going there quickly, I think. So the current environment's going to and really accelerate some timelines on and change some vantage points for how people look at different issues and look at problems. And yeah, to demerge, I mean, the numbers, when you look at a, a number of, of $6 million, you know, a year or whatever that figure was that you gave as example, I mean, you know, okay, if you've been living with that and maybe the last five years you spent $10 million on the same on the same thing and you're like, okay, we're doing good. Like we're going the right direction now. And, but then if you really step back and look, you think we could get so much further though, right? Like with the right tools and the right processes in place, you could, I mean, there's so much room for improvement there. There really is. And I think, you know, too, you're starting to see the next generation of oil field start to have, I don't know how you would explain, their teeth are, are cut now. You know, we kind of had after 08, I think we had kind of a new generation start to enter the oil field. And if they made it through that period of 2008 to 2010, I think you started to see those guys, you know, and gals get really kind of embedded into the industry. They started learning from the people that were, you know, very, very experienced. And now, you know, 2010 to 2020, now these people are VPs and senior VPs, and in some case, you know, CEOs and COOs. They're starting to, you know, the younger generation is is really saying, you know, why is it that I can find my wife and kids, but I can't tell you where any of this stuff is? And they're able to articulate that the value that's created with knowing where stuff is, not just here. Here's a dot on the map. Cool. You know, it's actually what can I do with the data behind that information? You know, you can look at a map and say from Houston to Port of Fushan, you can say, you know, within this hypothetical period of time, they can make that trip. So it's okay. You know, we provide ETAs and, you know, and all these timestamps, but, you know, you can visually and quickly see that, you know, here's the starting point and the stopping point and where the driver is. I've made that trip personally, so I know it can be done. I think that's what really good software does is it takes a ton of data and just presents it in a way that you can articulate it and view it very easily and very quickly. You know, our dashboards, we have, you know, two main dashboards, you know, and then, you know, you have kind of the the data behind the data, but the two main dashboards allows you to look at everything, pull your phone out, look at it, lock your screen, put it back in your pocket and you know everything going on. And I think good yeah. software does that. It takes complexities and makes it just really, really simple, stupid and allows you to do your job and do it quickly. Yes, I agree. I agree. Let's just look at Windows versus DOS, right? You had to know how to code and type in everything. I haven't heard I haven't heard somebody say DOS and I don't know how long. But you know what I mean? Like just oh, that yeah. you had to go from being able to write code to click on a picture. Now you don't even have to click on a picture. You just call Siri and ask Siri to do it for you. And most of the time it's it's done, you know, so I certainly understand that technological advancement and ease and efficiency and everything like that. And so we've touched on a lot. We've touched on, you know, kind of 
how logistics fits into the industry. We've touched on the issues that are around logistics. We've started to touch on rig callout and just kind of a technology-based solution to logistics problems. But let's get into what rig callout does. And maybe you can break down that for us a little bit. So yeah, rig callout is an oil field last mile supply chain solution. That's a lot of words to just say, where's my truck? You know, what's on it? When's it going to get here? And I think that's the front and center problem that you see in any logistical environment is the first problem is generally, you know, you're looking for information and it's where's my truck? You know, and then a, a series of phone calls take place. You know, if it's the port, where's my truck? The port calls the distributor, the distributor calls the dispatcher, the dispatcher calls the drivers, you know, and then that communication goes backwards. And then they say, oh, I forgot to ask you something. Can you get this information? And then we start over again. And, you know, in that fragmentation, it should really be the port and the driver making it a connection point. And, you know, if you think about a web of communication, you know, there should be a a direct link between the driver and and the location so they can quickly get what they need. Instead of calling somebody, they just pull their phone up. Oh, here it is. Track and trace is, you know, 20 some odd year old technology. It's not, it's not rocket science. It's just the way that we do it is so much different than anybody else and how we gather the information, why we gather it you know, and and how we then present it in a way that fits a very unique oil field. Oil field is very different than any other industry in a number of ways, you know, technology, culture, people, business processes and workflows. These are all vastly different than every other cargo or, you know, full truckload type of industry that's out there. And it's, you know, it's very fragmented. It's very unique. The people are different. The way that they do things is very different. But we layer down visibility on an existing supply chain. So what we do is we come in and, you know, BP says, hey, we need rig call out. BP can roll this out within their entire supply chain and all of the carriers that support their network in a day. You know, a a carrier can come on board and say, hey, we need this information. We need to, you know, the industry has gone to to tatters and we need to provide a value-added service or we need to get paid faster. So we need these services involved. And they can do that in a day and all their customers and their customers' customers are, you know, part of that. Halliburton can come in in a day, you know, and put this into their supply chain very, very easily. And so we make those connections very, very easily, but we also offer it up to the person that needs it, not just saying, you know, oh, we're a, we're a trucking company product or, you know, oh, we're an oil and gas company product or we're a distribution product. We're, we're all of it. We can do it all. And it's taken a great deal of coding to make that work and to present more or less three different industries of in- information and communication into one software platform and then allow for you know, simplicity. Any large organization sees this as a problem and, you know, they go and they build a solution for that problem or they, you know, they custom build these things and you run into problems because when one distributor does it, then another one does it and another one does it and another one does it and another trucking company does it, another trucking company does it. And then, you know, the Port of Fushan gets their own app, you know, and then BP gets an app. And, and all of a sudden, it's like anytime I want to ship something, I've got to enter information and 
35 different pieces of software. And, you know, the guy out on location says, yeah, just get it here on time or I'm going to hammer you and fire you. <laughs> like, I mean, it, they yeah. just, they stop. It's like they get that kind of adopt that technology fatigue or app fatigue that sets in. And, and I can't tell you how many, you know, major companies I've walked into and they say, this is really cool. We like it because we're building something just like it, you know, and it's like, <laughs> really have fun with that. You know, I, I've, yeah. I've been through the build process. I know what that's like. I've been through the testing phase. I know what driver adoption is like. If you need any help, you know, or you need to scrap that, give me a call. Here's why that's not going to yield results. And, you know, and we've had a couple of them call us back and say, yeah, we thought we could do it, but we can't get drivers to download this app. We can't get them to utilize it. We can't get our customers to use it. You know, how are you guys doing this? And it's really because we're a third party. We can come in and keep all that data siloed. So a distributor can utilize our product and another distributor can utilize it. But there's no data leakage between the two of those where they would, you know, they would put customer competitive data at risk, you know, where somebody's coming on and just mining our platform for all their competitors, customers information that can't happen within our platform. Nice. Maybe you touched on a nerve there, but man, I'm going through, and I'm sure many listeners are going through this right now, this app fatigue on team collaboration apps. I think oh, that's yeah. the overarching title for these now, but like I use Microsoft Teams for one part. I use Slack for another part. There's now Facebook Workplace. I don't know if you've seen <laughs> that one yet. We got WebEx. We got Zoom calls. We got GoToMeeting. It's like everybody's got their own type of solution that, man, it could become so frustrating. And I mean, if you take in and you kind of, I'm sure anybody listens, if they're working from home, remote working like I am, you're going to be able to take that frustration and draw parallels with that, with, with just what you say, like the service industry apps that everybody's trying to use and develop. I mean, if you go to somebody that's already worked the kinks out and they got it working and can add that kind of... You know, I don't want to say anonymous, but you know, you kind of have that wall that breaks the information up. You guys are going to do it the right way and be successful in that. So that's something to really credit to. I think some of the build concepts helped coming from the distribution part of the business. Most operators share information; they help each other. If they, you know, if they've got acreage positions that kind of butt up and they have challenges, they kind of, you know, they sign an NDA and they kind of work through the problem together. You see a lot of that in the Marcellus, you know, mm -hmm. and I imagine you see that in, in other areas as well, you know, and in trucking, trucking utilizes trucking to accomplish a goal. You know, you see so many trucking companies that, you know, they broker freight out to their competitors. I don't have the capacity, you know, can you do this load for me? You know, and in the distribution side of, of the business, that customer information is like gold. It doesn't ever get out, you know, coming from the pipe business. If I was ever in a, a social situation with another pipe company, there was never a point in time where one of my customers' names or contacts ever entered the conversation. You know, and that pipe business is kind of like the very, very unique industry. It's humorous. It's fun. I mean, it's really neat. It's a big AFE item on, a, on any well, offshore, onshore, you know, wherever. And so, you know, there's big revenue. There's a, just a lot of big personalities in it. But for the most part, you know, there's always the old, you know, 
you hire people to go out and chase my trucks. You know, there's always this rumor. I was never a part of the business to even see if it ever happened. I've never actually heard it confirmed. But the running joke in the pipe business is you have competitors will hire guys to sit in a pickup truck in the parking lot of a pipe yard and then follow that truck out to the drilling rig and then, you know, figure out who the customer is, who's buying pipe, mm-hmm. where is it going, what are they doing, who are the contacts at the company, who's hauling it. You know, and you take all this information and I had, you know, early in my career, I had a, another pipe company that we would sell pipe to say, hey, you know, I don't want to give you any information because you're going to take it and use it to get my customer. And I said, name an operator, you know, and they gave me an operator. I went to the Texas Railroad Commission. You know, I went to their drilling permit. I pulled the permit up and I pulled all the Railroad Commission data points. And I said, okay, here's your contact for this particular company. Here's his email address. Here's his phone number. Here's the address of the company. Here's the string design for that. And here, here's the actual cost for casing for my company to supply that. I didn't chase a truck. I didn't get any. I'm in St. Louis. I can't, you know. But the competitive lands, that's so important in the oil field to keep that information quiet. And we've taken that very, very seriously in our business because we don't want that information getting out. And, you know, because if it does, we're toast. I talked to a trucking company when, when the ELD mandates were coming out in 2017, you know, and, you know, they said they had a a software company come in and, you know, to get an app, you know, to push communications, you need a driver's cell phone number, an email address and whatnot. And when times are tough, you know, some tech companies that aren't aware of just kind of some of the unique culture stuff that goes on, they were selling driver information. If you can remember back in 2017, there was a huge driver shortage. And so the, you know, you've get a thousand ELD software companies that try to jump on this opportunity of a government mandate and 10 of them survive. And so the ones that don't survive do all sorts of crazy stuff to, you know, generate some cash or return an investment to an investor or to their own personal investment and make up for that. And that came at the cost of selling driver information. And they were wondering, you know, why are we losing all these drivers? And it came out that the ELD provider had taken all the driver information and sold it to competitors and they were just poaching drivers. And so we take that really seriously because I don't want to be branded as that particular company. Yeah, that's a one-way street. You don't get that brand off your back once you cross the threshold over that one. I, I mean, getting drivers is hard enough, let alone being the guy that's snaking your drivers and doing all kinds of backhanded stuff. And I mean, and I don't think I've ever done anything irresponsible or unprofessional, but I've had to, you know, beg and plead to get some drivers hired over the years when, when you need them the most, you know, I mean, it's been tough. It's super tough, you know, so. And it's still frightening. You know, you get the unsolicited emails for all the time in your email inbox and, you know, I get them all the time and they're, you know, hey, I've got the contact information for the, they're all these sales lead and sales generation lists that you can buy. And I'll test these guys, you know, and just say, you know, oh, hey, we think these two or three companies are competitors of yours. And, you know, I'm like, oh, really? Okay, well, what kind of information can you provide me? And they're like, oh, we know we have all their customer lists and all their customer contact information. And I'm like, send me a, a sample, a sampling of the information you can provide me. And they'll send it and you're like, 
these companies are servicing oil and gas and they're selling customer information out in the field. Like, you know, and then you get in into, into meetings and, you know, they say, oh, you know, data is everything, but we're using this tech company. And it's like, you know, this tech company is selling customer information. Here, here's a list that they just sent me for free, you know, and, and they're like, what, what? <laughs> I think that's always something that anybody and, and really any industry, but more so in, in oil and gas should be really conscious of, you know, should we be hiring, you know, some of these enterprise, you know, West Coast based software companies to be embedded in our organization when they speak so harshly of it. And that's the real problem I have with some of these companies trying to get the the golden goose of the oil field. You know, it's like, oh, it's oil and gas. They got money to blow. You know, they just, they fly around in gold plated private jets all the time. <laughs> you know, it, it's not like that, but they, they come after this industry thinking that they can charge 10 times what they would charge, you know, a CPG company, you know, and probably to a degree, there's some truth to that, but they don't understand the cultures and, you know, they can get themselves in a yeah. lot of trouble, but, you know, they can also not be a huge advocate of your organization. And if you're putting all your data into their system and they are just vilifying this industry, you know, in social media and the way that they vote and just, you know, the things that they support, you're essentially providing a means for these companies to kill your job. And I think that's what we really need to be conscious of just in this industry is to protect it. Yeah, I can see that. It's always people out there after what they don't have today and with uh, you know ulterior motives. Hopefully there's some respectable ones out there, some good characters and people that get it, but certainly a steep learning curve that's for sure you certainly gotta come in humble and ask the right questions and actually listen to what's going on and and put that to use in the right way how does rig call out help a company and we've touched on this a lot but you know what are the core ways that you guys could help somebody live in this low rate low, low margin environment and really continue to be successful yeah i think we hit it very early on you know i think this industry historically has kind of been a dance. You know, it's been the buyer-seller dance that's been played. You know, you have the distributor-driven booms of 06, 07, and early 08, you know, where they're making big margins and they're kind of making up for, you know, the early 2000s and then 08 and 09 hit, you know, and now the operator is kind of driving the dance you know, and the margins are getting crushed and they're surviving off those bigger margins from before, you know, and then again, leading up to 2014, those margin, the recovery starts to take place. And after that 2014 kind of hit, the industry margins have never really returned, you know, so, you know, I remember in 08 and I remember in 2014 getting memos from my customers and saying, you know, Hey, oil's dropped 50%. Now our pipe prices should be 50% less. You know, there's no correlation between the two, but historically that's how you have fixed the problem. And it's a new and it's a new economy. It's a global economy. It's also a very competitive, you know, you can have a guy sitting in St. Louis running tech for the oil field supply chain. And I think that that's where the industry's changed. You've got a lot of people that have been able to enter the market relatively easily and bring a level of competitiveness, but those margins haven't recovered. So these companies are still operating on razor thin margins and then they've been squeezed 
since 2014 because oil prices haven't returned, natural gas prices haven't returned. And now we have this kind of one-two double punch of corona and oil prices, and there's no margin to give. So supply chain people are saying, well, we need 30% margins or you're gone. Well, it's like, well, if I give you 30% margins, we're gone anyway. You know, and so you're yeah. not going to recover that because those margins are just keeping the lights on. They're not, you know, buying penthouse suites. They're not buying G6s. They're not doing these things that they used to do back in the 80s, you know, in the 90s and 2007. It's all about just a more of a, I don't know, tried and true business and with a normal margin and good customers and big revenue. And so, you know, where we see is, is what we hit on, some of these demerits, the standby time, the NPT time, the downtime, the hourly costs, you know, if you pay your freight hourly versus kind of lanes, you know, point A to point B, it's 1500 bucks. go. When you've got hourly freight, these numbers can vary wildly. You know, it kind of, if you burn through traffic and you get there quickly, you come out ahead at the end of the day. But what companies can do is, you know, they can throw an extra hour on there because they know that you can't track that. You know, if I go super skinny on my hourly rate, I can add a couple hours here and there, add a half hour there. Nobody's going to notice. Nobody's going to catch it. And that's what you've, you've been seeing for the last six or eight months. And now in the last month, month and a half, you're starting to see, you know, we get calls from auditors and securities people, you know, and they're saying, hey, look, we've got these, this hourly freight here. We have no way of monitoring and we have to account for this to our investors. So they'll ask the question, you know, how are you being accountable through your vendors to us? And they can't answer the question. Like, I don't know. I don't know how we track it, you know, and and so they're coming to us and saying, hey, you know, we've got, you know, kind of our latest, you know, LinkedIn thing was a company had $90 million of hourly freight that they spend a year and their auditors and securities people believe there's a 15% waste, call it what you want, fraud, waste, padded, whatever you want to call it. We just believe that 15% of that's not right. You know, and, and they said, and there have been conversations where we feel like that could look more like 30%. So when you come to a company and you say, hey, I need you to shave 30% off that drill bit, it's not there. You know, it's 6%. If I get rid of it, I've got to get rid of people. I've got to get rid of quality control. You know, the last thing you want to do is have a bit fail downhole or have a pipe failure. You know, this creates additional waste and risk and problems. And so, you know, do we really want our vendors that are just keeping the lights on to start reducing some of the quality controls and our products that we're buying? It's like, you know, buying a car. Oh, you know, it was the cheapest price and they got it to us the quickest. You know, it's like, okay, well, you know, what was the quote that NASA used to say? It was like, you know, hey, we've got, you know, half a million pounds of rocket fuel built by the lowest, you know, bidder on the face of the earth, you know launching us into into space. It's, you know, at what point are we lacking quality control? SpaceX can launch a rocket with zero failure rate, zero lives lost, and then land it on a pad in the middle of the ocean. You know, if you've ever landed a jet on an aircraft carrier, you know how difficult that is. These guys are automating that with computers and landing this thing back on a pad and reusing those rockets. And so, you know, Pushing your vendors to a point of where they have to, you know, take risks to keep that business. People do dumb things in bad times. 
And, and so I think if we can say taking 30% of that $90 million and cutting $27 million of our spend, you know, is probably putting us as a company at risk because those services could be at a lower quality or a lower service level that we come to expect. But if we put a technology in place that can cut 30% of that margin, then, you know, we're not forcing them into a difficult situation. Plus, you know, for a publicly traded company, most offshore business is big, huge corporations that are publicly traded. You know, what is one of the greatest things that you can tell your investors right now is we have put a product in our supply chain to be able to monitor and hold our vendors accountable. And we believe we can cut costs by X percentage. And they'll be like, oh my gosh, we've never owned an oil company stock where they've actually tried to, you know, do better, you know, bring technology in. And so that's where we can really help is just provide accountability in the supply chain for everyone, but give them the data to make real decisions. I was with a super major late last year and was just asking him about, you know, what are the things that you guys are pushing for? You know, what is management come to you and said as a supply chain person, like, this is your, your project for 2020, you know, and it's really been around not contract closing, you know, I'm going to buy pipe from this vendor, this is going to be the cost, you know, and, and here we go of the three bids I got, this was the best one, you know, it's contract execution. And so they're saying, looking back on our contracts, when they've said it would be $10, when that contract was fully executed, did it cost $10? Did it cost $9? Did it cost $15? And that's what they're concerned with is that the execution of that bid, because we all know that a bid is only as good as the execution involved in it. And so do you have the data behind your supply chain to say, you know, we've been using these 10 trucking companies to do our business and these guys, you know, are the highest price, but at the end of the day, they're actually lower than everybody else. and because we have the data to support it, not just hearsay, word of mouth, they're my buddy, whatever that is, they have data behind those decisions. And they can say, you know, they are generally lower at the end of our contract because they do a good job and we're able to monitor that stuff. But at the same time, you know, I'm not going to go with the low bid. I'm going to go with the number two bid because I have this data to support that decision. So when it all hits the fan and oil hits 98 cents a barrel, and the investors start, you know, getting into the books and the statements and the expense reports and the cost and the bid, and they're they're digging in there saying, "Where did you screw this up?" They can say, "Well, here's data. This is why I made this decision." Oh, okay, fair enough. Move on to the next the next problem. Whereas if they say, "Oh, I went to high school with that guy. He's my buddy. You're fired." That's not data that you can take to somebody and justify your action. All right. So, I mean, we've touched on a ton of stuff here today, lots of different things that people can take back to their business, different points and thoughts to look at and and see where they can increase efficiencies, maybe where they can reach out to rig call out and get you guys service deployed throughout their operation and really make some headway on the issues that we discussed today. So, Ryan, really, really appreciate talking with you today. Really appreciate your time and discussion. I hope the audience did as well. Is is there anything else that you want to give out to the audience? Yeah, thank you for having us on the show. We've been so thankful for OGGN and just what they've done for our company and the the platform they've provided. 
you know, you can reach us on our website at rigcallout.com or on all major social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, we're there. All of our contact information is there. You know, we can roll out very, very quickly. I think the assumption of oil and gas is that implementation takes weeks or months or years to take place. I think our record to date is from the moment we had a demo, we had a customer up and running in two and a half hours running loads out in the Permian Basin. Wow. To a, what was it? Six rig drilling program, I think it was. So we're able to move really, really fast. Our product already works at our trucking adoption rates are through the roof. We've got letters from, you know, many, many carriers expressing their desire to utilize this for their customers. So, you know, not only are we getting the adoption rates, but, you know, we have trucking companies that'll stand behind it. And that's purely because we believe in providing value to the total supply chain. So, you know, if you're a distributor and you don't feel like your trucking companies will use it, it's because they don't have any value in the products that you're providing them to utilize. And so this product started with trucking companies, was brought into distribution, and now we have started working directly with operators. So, you know, it's very important to us that anybody that touches this gets value from it. Awesome. 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 Ryan, thank you again. Listeners, Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for supporting the show with your listenership. And please, again, leave us a comment, leave us a review wherever you receive this content. It really helps us either improve the show or helps get us out to even more of an audience so we can continue to provide you this information. So, Ryan, thank you. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us on. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. See ya. Hi, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck. So obviously we are in uh, unprecedented times right now and have been unable to carry out our last couple of happy hours that we had scheduled for last month. We have chosen to delay them and we'll continue to update you on when exactly we will be able to have those events again. Obviously we're following along the recommended guidelines of the CDC and the World Health Organization. So we're really looking forward to seeing you and we're hoping that these events are going to happen sooner rather than later. But for now, stay tuned and we will keep you posted on those dates. Also, just want to say thank you to everyone for continuing to listen to Oil & Gas Global Network. We are fortunate to already have been a virtual company before the coronavirus and all of these issues started plaguing various countries. And we just want to continue bringing you guys the best information and to the best of our ability, keep you informed, especially while everyone is at home or at least most more people than ever before are at home. So we just would like to thank you for continuing to tune in and continuing to listen. And we hope that everyone is staying safe and we wish everyone the best. And thanks again. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.